0: Good morning. Turn with me if you would, in your copies of Scripture to the book of First Thessalonians, chapter 4, or it's printed in your bulletin. <clears throat> it is a, a privilege and is a pleasure of mine to be able to preach for us once more this morning. Uh, our text this morning connects us back to the theme that Eric had us thinking on of spiritual disciplines. And it brings us again to focus on the topic of sanctification. As I have the chance to preach uh, a few times over the next few months, um, I'll have the opportunity to preach through a number of texts. But first, my plan is to bring us from this passage to the end of uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. And starting now in uh, chapter 4, let us read the first 12 verses. This is the Lord's holy and an inspired word finally then brothers we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God your sanctification But in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Pray with me. Lord, you are our holy God. You present us this morning with a holy word, and we ask that you would use it by the power of your Holy Spirit to make us into a holy people. Open ears, soften hearts, show us the paths to walk in, and Lord, we ask you would perform the miracle of transforming us into the image of your Son, even as we hear your word preached this morning. Lord, we ask these things in your Son's holy and strong name. Amen. So for us to start off this morning with a sermon on sanctification, what I would like us to do is begin on putting our focus where it should be, which is on the triune God who is himself eternal sanctity. When the prophet Isaiah, if you recall, had his vision in the throne room of God in Isaiah 6, he hears the angels in a service of worship, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. And this is exactly what the Westminster Shorter Catechism calls us to In the first question, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The commission that God gave to Adam and Eve included to fill the earth with his his own image. And the same commission is given again to Noah. It's given implicitly again at the scattering of his image at the Tower of Babel. It is given again in the promise to Abraham to bless the whole world through his family. It is given to Israel in the book of Isaiah the call to be a light to the Gentiles. It is given in Jesus' words to be salt and light. And it is given to our children when we teach them the song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. So, this commission that stretches from Eden to Israel, Abraham, from Jesus... It comes into our homes, this commission on our lives that we confess this morning is to reflect the holy, holy, holy God in order to refract his glory to the whole world. And the text before us this morning is one that invites us in to submit to God's grand vision to fill the world with his glory. To create a holy people who are to illumine a dark world. Now, these verses are part of a letter, a short letter that Paul wrote to uh, Thessalonica, a Greek city, a short time after planting a church there and, and leaving. The church there was small, it was poor. He was only there for a short time because almost immediately after planting the church, Paul and the other missionaries and some of the church leaders became the object of state-sanctioned persecution. And when they left, Paul tells us that it was like they were orphans being stripped away from their family. The gospel he preached didn't fit the cultural norms of Thessalonica, and so the city of Thessalonica said that their church didn't fit in its city. But aching to encourage this young church, Paul sends Timothy back, and he sends him with this letter, a mere five chapters long, with words about how they should wait for Christ and love others when the world hates you. And it's this text this morning where we come to the turning point in the letter when, when Paul shifts from words of encouragement and comfort now to give that imperative, that command. And here it is in, in a summary form. That we are to please God by walking in holiness more and more. Please God by walking in holiness more and more. Follow his instructions, Paul says, more and more. Obey his will more and more. Love one another more and more, more and more. This phrase occurs two times in the passage, verse 1 and verse 10, more and more. Now, Paul wrote this letter in lieu of actually going back. In chapter 2, he says, we wanted to come back to you. Why? so that, he says, we might fill up what is lacking in your faith. Okay, but look at our verses again, verse 1 and verse 10. Verse 1 says, just as you are doing, do so more and more. And verse 10 says, just as you indeed are loving the brothers, do so more and more. So, at the same time, for Paul, the Thessalonians are in obedience and yet they are lacking in faith, lacking in their obedience. And so for us to proceed in tracking with Paul's logic here, we have to think about the the theological truth, the theological logic that makes it true that the Thessalonians are both lacking and are walking in obedience. And the answer becomes clear, does it not, when we remember what the standard of holiness is is. Now, right, what does God say to Israel? On the front of your bulletins this morning, you have Leviticus 20. He says, you are to be holy because I am holy. The way we know what holiness is, is to know personally the holiness of God. In fact, the word holiness only means anything because God himself is holiness. The fact that holiness is defined by God is also what distinguishes what we call sanctification from something like self-improvement. Right? A divine standard versus a human standard is what makes Christian sanctification something entirely different than systems of self-help or self-actualization or, or self-improvement. Sanctification involves a Godward movement, not a movement after the ideal image of the self-made man or a reinvented self that you've casted for yourself. And so in order to understand Paul's command to please God by walking in holiness, we must know that by holiness, what we mean is simply all of the goodness of who God is. It's not a human invention. It's not a philosophical ideal. There's not this abstract idea of holiness, which various religions or philosophies are all trying to Attain. there is no abstract idea at all because the word holiness is just the word we use to capture the perfect goodness of who and what God is. So that a command to walk in holiness is specifically the command to walk in God's holiness. Now, if you read the whole letter, we would learn that the Thessalonians, Paul says, received the message in power and with the Holy Spirit. And they were transformed and they had begun to act like a holy people. But at the same time, here the uncrossable distance between our good works and God's goodness will always mean that there is a lack to be filled up. So we are wise To know with Paul, to crave with Paul, or as he puts it elsewhere, to race with Paul, to yearn, to strive after God's holiness. So, people of God, keep your eye this morning on holiness, on the one who is holy. As we keep our focus there, we want to look at this text in order to meditate on and unpack this command from Paul to please God by walking in his holiness more and more. So, for the rest of this morning, we'll just take that sentence and think about it phrase by phrase. So the first phrase, please God. Please God. The conversion of many of those at Thessalonica would have been in their recent memories. And like them, perhaps we too, can recall the first or perhaps some distinct moments in our lives of faith and repentance when we were overwhelmed with God's grace. And as you recall those moments, perhaps even now this morning, bringing to mind those memories, you can even feel the warmth of the Father's smiling face. And as it is with all children, the pride and pleasure of our Father is something we never tire of chasing. The difference being that with our Heavenly Father, we never fail to find our obedience met with pleasure. Met with His smiling face. The Father who perfectly loves the Son will never fail to take pride and pleasure in those who come to share in His Son's holiness. Perhaps another difference is that with our Father in heaven, we never have to wonder what He wants from us. It is not a secret. Look at verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now I imagine that nearly... Everybody in this room at some point in their life has asked some version of the question, God, what do you want from me? The Thessalonians turned, Paul says, from idols to serve the living and true God. And what did they get? Persecution? Social shame? They got unemployment? Not unemployment benefits, they were unemployed. When does God come to their aid? When things start piling up for you, loss, medical issues, relationship pressures, when things start to pile up with no reprieve, have you found yourself asking something like, God, what do you want? I'll do anything, just make it stop. Careful. Careful. We are not talking about trading human holiness for God's pleasure as though we were dealing with a manipulative merchant. Rather, suffering and despair are in the service of making holiness shine brighter. Holiness is not our way of climbing up out of despair. Rather, it is precisely in conforming increasingly to Christ's holiness, to the likeness of His Son, whose most glorious obedience is seen precisely in the most intense and profound moment of suffering. It is in that image that we are called to be conformed and transformed, so that we might share increasingly in the smile of the Father. That is what God wants from us. It is not a secret. What God wants from you is not a secret. It's not something you have to figure out through some deep self-reflection. God's will for your life is not out there on a mountaintop somewhere for you to go find. You will not find it backpacking through Europe in order to find yourself, as it may be. Right? Perhaps, at points, God sends old friends our way with words of encouragement from the Scriptures. But we don't have to discern and be surprised to learn the secret will God has for your life by those chance encounters or being inspired by a random message on a billboard or by the various chance occurrences in life. When you... <clears throat> We all have asked this, this question, perhaps not in frustration, perhaps just as some transition in life, when you graduate or, or leave one job or become empty nesters what is God's will for my life? But you will not find it in the serendipities of, of life or through any kind of self reflection, except insofar as those things point you to and, and remind you of what God says in this His Word. When we talk about God's will, right, we can talk about a couple of different things. We can talk about what theologians call God's will of decree and His will of command, or the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. The secret will refers to God's inscrutable plans and ways, the way and exactly how the earth spins, those whom He elects to eternal life, the spouse or jobs that he has ordained for you. But it is called a secret will for a reason. It's not for us to know. But when we seek after the will of God, then it is simply unfitting to pine after some eternal perspective on our lives that only God has. So, for example, when we ask a question like, which job is the right one for me to take, the question we are asking is not, it should not be, which one has God ordained for me? As though we were under the pressure of discovering some objective eternal viewpoint on our own lives. Rather, as we confessed earlier this morning, the duty of man, which the Scriptures teach, is to obey the revealed will of God, what He has told us. And that's the will that Paul is talking about here. So the question about, again, for example, which job is the right one, that question ought to be some form of which decision is more glorifying to God, loving of others, and exercises wise stewardship over the gifts and responsibilities that God has given to me. Would you not confuse God's secret will with meaningless fate. And we do not presume that our decisions might accidentally impinge on God's plan, on His decree, as though we had that power. But nor should we be anxious then that we might make that mistake, step out of alignment with God's eternal plan. But when you seek God's will, remember that it is not for you to seek after God's secrets. What is In his mind eternally when you seek to do God's will seek to be holy in whatever you do this is the will of God your sanctification more and more so then here's the next phrase please God by by walking by walking so here's the the imperatival the command um, the commanding thrust of this passage. This is where Paul spends most of his time in this passage. He's discussing exactly how we are to walk. And he focuses on two things. He focuses on sexual purity and loving one another. Look at verse 3 and 4, if you will. Now the language here, as you look at the text, it's very active. It's even even aggressive. You could translate it something like Stay away from sexual immorality and gain control or mastery over your own body. Or literally the text just says your vessel. Put off, put on, resist impurity, learn the discipline of gaining control over your body, over your bodily vessel. Your own body is a battleground. Impurity wants it, immorality wants it, God says resist. Paul says, resist. We can think of Romans 6 here. Right? Your members, your vessels, they are a slave to something. They are a slave either to sin, or they are a slave, we are slaves to sin or to righteousness. And there we are reminded that the vessel can be a vessel for the kingdom of God, only and precisely because Jesus has already won the battle for our bodies. But the fight continues until our lowly bodies are transformed and share in the immortality of Jesus' own resurrected body, and until our passions are transformed into his. So the distance between this body and his body, that distance requires the discipline of controlling the battleground More and more, more and more. Gain the ground that Jesus has purchased and claimed with his blood. Gain it more and more. So, this morning, ask yourself as the text confronts you here this morning with a reminder for the battle for the body. How are you doing? How are you doing in the battle for the body? Now, Paul reminds us of something in this passage that is quite often overlooked. Look at verse 6, if you will. Paul starts to talk here about the public implications of losing in that battle. Sexual immorality is not a private matter. Now, there are some really obvious ways in which that is true. Such as the, the public and social effects of marital infidelity. But just because the public, command, the public communal effects may be less obvious, do not let yourself think that immorality in this area can have a private version a version with no victim, a version with no brother that is wrong. It is impossible, it is impossible for you to privately deny God's power to transform your life, to privately disregard God's commands, or to think that some of His commands can be innocently broken every so often. It is impossible for that to be a private conviction and for it not to affect your lack of a public witness then to your brothers and sisters. Private doubts, privately disregarding God does not naturally lead to you publicly, communally loving and exhorting your brothers and sisters. Or, just consider how private sin contributes to the hypocrisy of the church and hurts her witness. Private sin in this area, practically speaking, can easily result in greater contributions to an immoral industry than to God's church. Or, you think of how sin weakens the church body as a whole when it may be what disqualifies someone from leading an office that they are otherwise called to. And above all, know that there is no private, true solitude for immorality because the Lord who knows all and sees all is an avenger. He will defend... The bride. He will restore her and protect her from your sin. He will make restitution for the sin that danger, her, whether done in public or private. So, we always, always have to believe, practically, in one of two things. Either there is no self-kept secret sin... Or the Lord is not Lord over you in your solitude. Either there is no self kept secret sin, or Jesus is not the Lord over you in your solitude. Think of the Lord as an avenger. Civic justice is good when it maintains boundaries. It does not come into your house without a warrant, does not force you to self-damning testimony, you can plead the fifth, it does not tamper with the jury of your peers. Heavenly justice does not appeal to the judgment of your peers, it does not need human witnesses, you cannot plead the fifth, and it needs no permission to enter your private home or your private thoughts. And just As Jesus knows all and sees all, Jesus had to pay for the sins that only he knew about. And those who disregard his work, those who disregard his word, those who say to themselves that the way, the truth, and the life is their own passions will have to pay for their own sins, even the ones that only God knew about. Now, there is quite a close connection then between gaining more and more control and loving your brothers and sisters more and more. If we accept the invitation to God's mission to fill the world with His glory, if we accept this invitation to reflect His holiness communally, together, as a body, then we must accept that sanctification is not a private affair. We must pray not only for the sanctification of ourselves, but for others. We must welcome the discipline of the church for our sanctification. We must welcome the exhorting words of our brothers and sisters. We will welcome those who have humbled themselves in obedience to take the log out of their own eye so that they might come in closer fellowship with us to exercise that personal care it takes to remove the speck from your eye. And it involves the humility on your part to do the same, to remove the log that you might care for others. Sanctification requires a self-sacrificing, putting others first, loving humility to one another in our body. This passage draws a straight line from some of the most private battlegrounds between sin and purity to the way that we Live together as a body in the way that we reflect God's glory to the world. So let's move on to think about this next phrase then. Please God by walking in holiness, in His holiness. Not by walking according to the socially accepted standards around you, but by walking according to or in His holiness. So here's the situation in Thessalonica. As best we can surmise, sexual impurity was culturally rampant. Fornication was quite common. Perhaps there was even prostitution connected to the pagan temples. But Paul was not the only one with a sexual ethic. So Thessalonica, in the shadow of Athens, was quite familiar with Stoicism, Epicureanism, and various streams of philosophy Which had as a common value in one way or another an emphasis on controlling one's passions, mastering the passions. The inconsistency between that common message and the rampant immorality is one witness to the fact that that is a failed system. Nonetheless, Paul is not alone in saying these kinds of things gain mastery over your vessel. And of course, this ancient virtue is foreign to the virtues of today, which which were almost the opposite, where freedom and the true self is is defined by embracing and even feeding one's instinctive passions. So, self mastery over passions, or being mastered by your passions, which one does Paul? Agree with. Neither. And in some way, both. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> if you disregard this, you do not disregard the standards of men, but you disregard God Himself. Further, verse 8 says that God gives the Holy Spirit. Which Spirit? His Spirit that is so characterized by holiness that holy becomes His standard adjective. Look at verse 1. Paul urges them, in the Lord. Verse 2. The instructions came through the Lord. Verse 7. It is... God, who does the calling. Verse 9, you have been taught by God. You are God-taught to love one another. Paul is not a Greek philosopher calling you towards self-dependence and mastery over your passions. He is not a modern calling you to dependence on your passions. He is the Christian apostle calling you to dependence on the passions of Christ. Passion of Christ He calls you to be mastered by the authority of Christ in dependence on the Holy Spirit of Christ and His power. The good news of God's holiness is this: It is not your holiness. It is not generated by you. It is not a reflection of you achieving the best version of yourself. Holiness is what happens when God does the miraculous work of making you into a new creation. You master the old passions in order to be, and precisely in being, filled with a new passion of Christ's, a passion for holiness for more of who God is, for more of what is good, for more and more likeness to His character. That means here that when Paul urges and instructs you to more and more, more and more, more and more, it is not a whip at your backs. It is a lifeline from heaven offering you a way to walk further into the life that is good, despite the fact that you are not good. So we do not exercise the discipline of our bodies and passions in order to get grace that we do not have. Rather, we exercise discipline, Christian discipline, to walk in the paths that have been created for us By grace, that we have been placed onto by grace. Look at verse 7. Paul says this in his subtle use of the prepositions God has called us not for impurity, but in holiness. Not for holiness, although that is very much true, but here, in holiness. And the profound yet beautifully simple point is this. God does not simply say, chase holiness, as though it were the end of a rainbow. He puts you in holiness. Quite literally, He puts you in the Holy Son in union with Jesus. And so it is only in God's salvation, not the autonomy of the ancient self or the modern self, not your hardest effort, not you being driven by the whip on your back that is your shame and guilt. It is only God's salvation through faith and self-abandoning trust on the thrice holy God, which makes holiness for you possible. And this is what makes holiness in our community and our love for one another possible. We are called in privacy and in community to walk in His holiness more and more. A holiness that is God-willed, God-wrought, God-taught. So finally, people of God, look with me at the last couple of verses Now, if you just read it out of context here, lifted it off the page, verse 11, uh, it it could read like something picked up out of a a Wendell Berry book or an Ann Landers column or off of a needle-pointed pillow, um, but it is not that. Everything that we have just said and seen in the passage must teach us how to read this verse And it must be a reminder for us that for the Christian, the quiet, industrious, independent life that many of us long for is not a a retreat from the war. So remember the context that Paul is writing into here. It is not into a context of tranquil retreat. This is the context of a hostile city. And the point of this is not the way to find earthly bliss, but instructions on how exactly to go about suffering. That is, to suffer in such a way that you do not give those around you any real grounds to say anything but that those who follow Christ are the best kind of neighbors, the best kind of citizens, the best at establishing peace. Peace, there is the word behind quiet in in your text. In verse 12, then, when when Paul says to walk properly before outsiders, he does not mean to walk properly according to the standards of outsiders. He means something more like walk properly, that is, in God's holiness, in front of outsiders. And yes, however, it is our hope that we might act in such a way that outsiders cannot help but give approval because it is, in fact, holy. Holy. And to that extent, we are a witness to them. The Thessalonians may have needed the reminder that holiness does not lead then to neglecting responsibilities, as though all they had to do at this point was to wait for Christ to come back. What Paul describes here is the picture of what holiness looks like that is not a flash-in-the-pan holiness, but rather... A perpetual witness, more and more, more and more, seeking always to refract God's glory to outsiders. We are looking always to make it more and more true what the angels proclaimed of the heavenly triune God that the world is filled with His glory. people of God from private life private thoughts to public life the call is that by faith in the Son of God we are to walk more and more in the light and warmth of the Father's smiling face let's pray our good and our holy God, we ask again, you would draw us into the good news of your holiness and its demonstration in the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that by faith we would be raptured by your goodness and drawn into it to walk in that way Conform us, Lord, to that most beautiful image of your Son, who despite all circumstances does not fail to show the world more and more of who you are. Seal these words in our hearts. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.